Good morning, class. That's morning spelled with a U, so it's a goddamn pun. Count it. I'm Andy Sell. You're listening to Ghoul School on the Unpops Network. Please, if you'd be so kind, rate and review the show wherever you got the show. It helps us out a lot. We really appreciate it. No, we're not dead. I'm not dead. The show's not dead. We move on. We've got some exciting stuff on the way, in fact. I'm very excited for stuff that's coming in the new year, including. Two more extra dreadits, one with Unpops regular and friend Eric Barnes, one with Hollywood Crime Scene podcast host Rachel Fisher. I'm really stoked to put both of those in your ears and hearts. They are real fun. We've also got the two-part, possibly now three-part conclusion to the found footage season, as well as the beginning of the slasher season. That's right, it's happening. I'm not going to apologize for being so absent this year, but, you know, it's been, it's still a weird year. 2021 has not been much more stable than 2020, and we don't have to get into all of that now, but I've also been busy with another podcast called Look Good for the Boys, a horror gossip podcast that I co-host and co-produce with my close friend Philip Johnson. You can follow us on Twitter at lookgood 4 that's number four, boys, at lookgood, number four, boys, or on Instagram, which I believe is just lookgood for the boys, available wherever you get podcasts. Go ahead and rate and review that show as well if you feel like going crazy. We've been putting out a lot of content over there, and we've got more content on the way, including a ranking of the victims of the Silent Night, Deadly Night series by Hotness which I know you want to hear. But look, you're not here to hear about Look Good for the Boys. You're here to hear more Ghoul School, which is what we've got right now. But let me take a moment to say, hey, hi, how are you? I hope you're doing okay. I hope 2021 has treated you relatively well since the last time our class was in session. And I hope you've got some good stuff coming in 2022. I know I've got some stuff that I think is good for you in 2022. But more importantly, I hope life in general has some good stuff for you coming. But what I've got for you right now is a conversation with S.A. Bradley, host of the podcast Hellbent for Horror and author of the book Screaming for Pleasure, How Horror Makes You Happy and Healthy. And what can I tell you about S.A. Bradley? I can tell you a lot. I could tell you that he's contributed to dozens of different podcast anthology and magazine outlets, that he's been nominated for a goddamn Rondo Award, which is so cool. But what I want to tell you is my impression of him, which is that he's terrific. He's got this, like, near total recall regarding movie scenes and moments. You'll see this in his book if you read it. And you'll definitely hear it a few times in this conversation. He has this ability to not just bring a scene to mind, but to put you in it, to transport you, to make it feel immediate and immersive. He's both laid back and leaning forward, both engaging and disarming. 
And I just get excited when I'm talking to people about these things. I love to just make connections and bond and shoot the general shit and develop a rapport. And I had a lot of fun. And I'm hoping that we can get him to come back at some point so that I can be a little more in interviewer mode and address some of these things I found interesting and compelling in his book, which I do recommend, by the way. You can go to hellbentforhorror.com and find out how to get a copy. And hell, maybe you can read it and have some questions of your own that you can send on to me that if we get him to come back, I can ask him. But for right now, let me just say, happy holidays. I hope everything's cool. There were a lot of great horror movies this year. I'm always eager to talk about them. If you want to hit me up on Twitter, at Andy underscore Sell, S-E-L-L, as in sell you a copy of Screaming for Pleasure, but not my copy, that's mine. Let's go ahead and right now listen to this conversation that I got to have with S.A. Bradley. So, good afternoon, Scott. Can I call you Scott? Is that okay? Absolutely. S.A. Bradley is always a nice introduction, but after that, it's Scott. And the main reason that I do that is because there is another Scott Bradley, who's an author, author, screenwriter. And he had done a book called The Book of Lists, Horror. We're, We're friends on Facebook. We call each other our doppelgangers. But because of that, I felt it a good idea to distinguish myself from the other author. And S.A. Bradley, you know, sounds like a little bit pulpy and silly and stuff like that so it works yeah there is there is kind of a pulp author sort of quality to the name that i dig you're here with us today to discuss a great many things i want to say i just finished reading your book screaming for pleasure how horror makes you happy and healthy great book by the way thank you thank you very i much. encourage my listeners to to seek that out there are a lot of texts right now out about sort of horror survey and social and cultural impacts of horror and why people like horror movies. And I've read a few of them, and this is it's one of my favorite ones of them, mostly because you go into a lot of biographical detail. You explore your history, your relationship with horror personally, which I always find is a good way to draw somebody in. Oh, thank you. Yeah, uh, I and myself, because I'm a really big nerd, I don't mind academic texts. But I think that a lot of times academic texts around things like horror and comedy and stuff uh, go dry really, really fast. To me, this has always been about starting a conversation. It's always been about giving back and getting and receiving. Uh, You know, I'm not a hoarder of information and ideas. I like the idea of getting out there. And I think that is, you know, a very time-honored way of getting information out there is not being the educator but being kind of the conspirator, co-conspirator with somebody. Yeah, and that's something you touch on a lot in the book, especially uh, in the later, later parts of the book, when you talk about your what got you back into it. And it's, uh, I don't want to spoil too much, because again, I think it's a book that, that has a lot of rewards in it for, for people that want to read it. But I, I love this idea of the co-conspirator element. I love this idea of, The other concept you talk about in the book, which is hybrid vigor, Mm -hmm. uh, which is fuck purity, you know, (laughs) we need we need we need other co-conspirators. We need to reach outside of our comfort zones and reach outside of our our norms to find people reading this book and listening to a few episodes of your podcast, Hellbent for Horror, which I also recommend people do. We sort of I think you and I have a same approach 
to this genre that we love and to the discussion around it in that way that we want to have the conversation. We want to make these little connections and like sometimes just kind of show them to somebody else and say, hey, isn't this neat how this relates to this? And and then see what they say and see how what insights other people have to bring into it. Yeah, I think that always uh, I like that you brought up hybrid vigor because I love talking about that. And I call horror now when I go to conventions, I say it's like Frank's Red Hot Sauce. You can put it on any other genre and it's just going to add to it. It's going to accentuate it. And I think that horror has the ability to blend very well with any other genre because it's so deeply steeped in allegory and metaphor and uh, it's more of parable at times. So it doesn't mean, yeah, you know, a kind of like horror is a emotion first. It's a uh, location second. You don't have to have a scary castle. You don't even have to have a building and you can have a horror story appear in some ancient time. It can happen in a contemporary thing. It can happen in the future. And it's always talking about the same anxiety because those anxieties are universal. Whatever that anxiety is, that little button that's being pushed by the horror story, uh, it's it's something that's pretty universal for most folks. Yeah, exa- exactly. It's It's incredibly universal because everyone on this earth has been afraid. And, you know, you you do bring up in the book, too, you have this very big tent view of the genre. Yes. I love to infuriate people with that. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's great. It's great because there are a lot of people that want it to be smaller or that want these gates that they can keep. And the idea that, no, it can go anywhere. It can get into anything. You can you can have horror crossbreed with anything and and get something rewarding out of it. And I, you know, you, you talk about there being in the book, drama can be horror, action can be horror, comedy can be horror. And I, I want to say that I think, you know, if boiled down to essence, all stories are more or less horror stories. <laughs> all, I should, I should look, I'll, I'll give a caveat. All stories of conflict, at least, okay. because you know, what do they teach you uh, when you're when you're learning uh, the art of storytelling? It's that there's, what is it, four basic conflicts that you can have. Mm-hmm. Man versus man, man versus society, man versus nature, and man versus self. And I just think that all of those are pretty implicitly horrific. So right. anytime there's conflict, there's there are horror stakes at the very least. Yeah, well, that's funny. Uh, you, it brings up two things, two conversations that I've had of recent there's a really great documentary uh, called Woodlands Dark and, and oh my goodness, I'm forgetting the entire Woodlands title. Dark and Days Bewitched. I cannot wait to see it. Uh, yeah, I got to see it in a film festival. I went to the film festival just to see it. And it's amazing. Three and a half hours, I think, all told. And it could have gone on longer. But towards the end, I was exasperated going, well, everything's full car uh, because the, 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 the tent continues to grow and grow in this uh, documentary, but there are valid points for it all. And it's funny because we do, uh, folks who like full car, uh, especially some of my friends over in England, we spend a lot of time going, well, everything really is full car. That's a horror story if you really boil it down because it's all about the full conversation. And I guess that goes back to what you're talking about where everything essentially can go down to the four dramatic arcs that a story can take. And I like to say that horror is the second oldest story ever told. And so this falls into what you're talking about, which Mm -hmm. is the first story around the first campfire is the 
elder uh, saying, thank you, all of you, for being here. Uh, thank you, Great Spirit, for the, the sky, and thank you for the fire and the food and the animals. Uh, we are all safe here, and we are all family here, and we have strength. That's the first story. Very heartwarming. Gives you an idea who your tribe is. And the second story is, whatever you do, don't go into those woods. Those woods, <laughs> there are things in there that are going to kill you. And so the cautionary tale is as important in defining your tribe as the welcoming tale. And so I think Har is always in that fashion. I think drama, in other words, does propel where Har can go. And I think at its most base essence, the Har story is the cautionary look at where we are and what we value and what we don't value. And sometimes horror movies anger us because they tell us exactly where we are and it's not who we think we are. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's... You know, there's there's something to be said for the comfort food quality that a lot of horror can take on. But we also got to remember, ultimately, these stories are here to tell us what our problems are. They're here to tell us what yes. we should worry about. And sometimes right. what we should worry about is ourselves and our convenience. And so it's, yeah, it's a big it's a big, it's a big continent, man, and there's room for a lot of cool stuff. <laughs> there's a lot of wiggle room. There's a lot of swim room for for the stories, and that's what I like about it, and why I dislike the gatekeeping system that mm. basically says that this is. Uh, I think, you know, not to harp on it too much, but I think Har does this great service to us that we don't necessarily realize it's doing which is there are times that the horror movie will say things that we're like man that's in terrible taste why are we doing that and it's like a wake-up call to us where our subconscious is working its way through art you know i don't think that any filmmaker any artist any writer will basically be able to live in a vacuum outside of what's happening in society but not only that they may not be conscious of it i like what toby hooper said which is you know uh Sometimes it takes 20 years to figure out what your movie was all about. And that doesn't mean anything dumb, right? It just means yeah. that that is, you are, you are in the mix and you are reporting about the mix. And you may not be, you're in the trees. It may take a long time before you can see the forest and really mm -hmm. figure out, oh, that's why I had that in there. Yeah, and I don't I think, yeah, yeah, that's not dumb luck. You know, I think that that's just part of the creative process. And sometimes people are like, oh, that's not, that's not what they or they intended to do as if they're not smart because of that. And I'm like, creative writing is not like accounting. There are not little columns that you follow for debits and credits. This is entirely free flowing. And the ideas of serendipity and all of that are part of that whole creative process. And all of that, I think, comes from within. Why am I excited by this story? Well, if you look at it close mm -hmm. enough, you may see how it's connected with everything. It's there. Do you have to know that stuff? Not necessarily. As a, an audience member, you don't necessarily have to know either. The movie can be about big rubber monsters attacking each other. It doesn't have to be about uh, whatever the, uh, the underpinning thing is. But that doesn't mean that the underpinning doesn't exist. And so I'm excited by uh, where horror can do that. And, you know, if you need an example, my favorite to talk about is how much people hated the Saw movies, how much mm -hmm. they hated the hostile films and torture porn without realizing that we had just seen the Abu Ghraib incident mm -hmm. where mm -hmm. the entire world is watching the United States to see how we're going to talk about 
torture? Did we torture? Are we going to let ourselves off the hook? And we kind of said, well, maybe that wasn't torture. Maybe, maybe there is a reason for torture when many, many lives are at stake. And you know, we did this whole dance. So the next thing you know, we have horror telling us, putting that torture right in front of us mm -hmm. again and again and again. We had movies that were nothing but people tied to chairs getting dismembered. Yeah. And uh, I was just like, yeah, this, how did we get there? Why wasn't that important 10 years earlier, right? The movie yeah. might not have flown. It may not have become a big event. But that curiosity, that anger, I think that the, the proper horror or the proper exploitation film, it doesn't care which side you're on. It just wants to irritate both sides. It's, it's there to throw that apple cart to the ground. Yeah. And I think conversations about intent and interpretation are always important to have, but they aren't, you know, the alpha and omega of a value judgment regarding a work's merits, you know. So it, it is interesting often to look at films, especially you brought up Hooper with Texas Chainsaw Massacre, where the famous story there is that he was a he, he had a sense of humor to him. The movie was oh, supposed yeah. to be funny and nobody yeah. got the humor in it. So when he made the sequel, he made it so humorous that right. it alienated the audiences. Yeah. And, you know, and both works have come to mean something completely separate from how they were intended, you know, 20, 30, 40 years later. Yes. And and it's just interesting how a work has a life of its own. Yeah. And context matters and time mm -hmm. matters. I mm -hmm. mean, when I first saw Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> And then I came back to it, right? But the first time I saw it, I was like, uh, my smile turned into like a rictus of horror. I'm like, what in the hell is, is he this? doing here? This is madness. And so overt. I mean, like the, the whole chainsaw between the legs, it's mm -hmm. 80 feet long and she's on an ice bed and the ice is spraying her wet shirt. And you're like, what am I, this is so, of course, he was kind of forced to do the movie. Yeah. And uh, he uh, did not respect Canon. Canon did not respect him. He did never wanted to do a sequel, and so he went right for the jugular. I think it was a brash, brash piece oh, of work. It's Hooper's Bride of Frankenstein. Yeah. In that, yes. In the, the same kind of conditions as well. Yeah. That is actually a great way to look at it. He was like, oh, if you're going to make me do this, I'm going to turn it into the biggest joke I can. And in a way, it becomes this, you know, once we're out once we're 10 years removed from the 80s, like I would say maybe 98, 99 is when Texas Chainsaw right. 2 started getting reappreciated. And it was like, okay, we've got a big enough distance from where we were at, then right. we can look at it and say, oh, this is a critique of the excesses of that age. Yes. And uh, with, without necessarily meaning to be a critique, it may have just been Hooper being like, fuck you, yeah. which can in, its, in itself produce some of the great <laughs> works <laughs> of history. Like, yeah. uh, not to telegraph this segue too much, but you're a metalhead. <laughs> right. And that's a big part of metal is, is the, you're going to tell me what to do. No, you're fucking not. Right. So, and that's another thing that I, I, there were a lot of moments in this book where I found a kinship with you. And that was, that was one of them. The fact that, okay, he's a metalhead. We're on the same team here. Venn diagram, I talk about that a lot with friends these days, that I have seen that there are particular folks that I connect with, and there's kind of a Venn diagram across different things. So they, it might be Sam Peckinpah films, mm -hmm. as well as horror. It might be heavy metal, as well as horror. It might be dark comedies, something like Monty Python, or 
blazing saddles, whatever it might be. But there are all these different things and it'll be tattoos, body modifications might be one of the things. Kink. Yeah, kink. I was going to say, you go into the BDSM community. Yeah. So there is this thing where I think there's just little areas of that where it doesn't necessarily mean that everybody that's in one of those is going to work and be appreciative of the other pieces. But there is this Venn diagram layover that where there is that connection. I find that a lot of the people that I meet that are really kind of lifelong horror fans tend to have their feet in a few of those worlds, more than one. Mm -hmm. And yeah, heavy metal is one of the big ones. I think any world where there's a sense of, you know, an iconoclast tradition or a, a misfit tradition, anyone where, mm-hmm. where yes. there are people who have been made to feel like outsiders or outcasts from what we consider mainstream society, whatever yeah. the dominant social paradigm is. Right. And, you know, that punk rock queer communities Absolutely. as well. Absolutely. Like I, I remember yes. for a long time, every time I met somebody new that was into horror, they were a member of the LGBTQ community. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. it serves as sort of a beacon to a lot of people. Yeah. And women in horror. I mean, Bela Lugosi talked about that from the very oh, beginning, yeah. you know, that women are like hardwired to be able to appreciate and enjoy horror. And it changes in, in their time of life. I know a lot of women who loved horror movies until they had kids. Then they were off of horror movies for a long period of time. And then when the kids left, they're starting to get back into them. That's actually, that's a thing I, so this is a complete anecdote, but (laughs) I I worked for Ray Bradbury for a while. Wow. Which was, yeah, it was mind blowing. I was worked for his theater company and a friend of mine and I that, that worked for the theater company really wanted to do an adaptation of his story, The October Game, Mm. because it is probably my favorite piece of short fiction ever. And we wanted to do a staged adaptation of it. And he refused. He was just like, no, you can't. I wrote that before I had kids. Uh-huh. Yeah. I can't look at that work now. And one of the things uh, that I get to say as a human being is that I was with Ray Bradbury on his last Halloween. Wow. We were reading some of his stories to him and we read that one to him. And he was just like, huh. That's pretty good, huh? <laughs> he like <laughs> he'd come back around to being like, "No, I can appreciate why I wrote that now." Wow, that's that's fascinating. I could go down a, a rabbit hole with Bradbury because Bradbury and Harry Hosn, they were good friends mm-hmm. and they knew each other for close to all their life and they, they're both these talented people in different areas doing all of this work and having people like Neil Gaiman being very close to Bradbury. And I remember seeing Gaiman probably a decade ago now, where Gaiman had written this story about Bradbury, talking about how he was losing his memory. And uh, I was sitting there going, wow, how tragic to have that memory, that mind, you know, all of the stuff that Bradbury had in him kind of lost in the ether. It's in the computer. We just can't boot it up. And and that's the... That's the rough part. Uh, having a father that has Alzheimer's, it, 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 it strikes a chord with me. Oh, yeah. And I think that that's also very ripe for horror. And that's why I like movies like The Taking of uh, Deborah Logan. Yeah, Taking of Deborah Logan is one of my favorite found footage films. But Yeah, I'm not a huge fan of those. So when I see one that really <laughs> blows me away, I'm in it. Yeah. I was kind of one of those, like, I like a handful of found footage films, but as a, as a whole, I, I dismiss the subgenre. Until I had to do a season on found footage films, and I've kind of come to appreciate even ones that I would call maybe not as worthwhile now, I can be like, well, 
I watched it, I guess. Oh, I don't... <laughs> well, that's cool. And I almost feel like I'm ready to give you a quick, easy lob over the tennis court because I'm, I'm going to make an illusion of how found footage is kind of like slasher films because found footage films, the first one was amazing. Well, the first major one that really yeah. started the entire craze, Blair Witch Project, was so revolutionary. It was everything that horror needed at the moment because horror had become rather stagnant. But Blair Witch was like this, that was like Italian neorealism. It was like this whole mm -hmm. change. We're hyper aware of the camera, but it's no longer this thing where, uh, I mean, the horror films at that point had gotten so structured. It was kind of like, it may as well have been the dusky old castle with the lightning flashes. And uh, so it blew my mind. I was one of the people who said that one and Paranormal Activity are masterworks, mm -hmm. that they really are pure cinema. They actually changed how we look at film. They took us back to the silent era in some ways. And they got the audience doing the work on the frame, which is brilliant. And how experimental is it to have your actors hold the cameras and the nagra, and then they have no clue what they're working on and they have to kind of roll through this. So the fear that you feel is real. The mm -hmm. cold that you feel is real. And you can taste that coming through the film. So I love that. But just like the early slashes, which were like punk rock to me, they were like, wow, this is amazing. This is a kick in the ass. And everything was risk. The first couple of years of the slasher cycle were incredible because anyone could die at any time. There was no final girl formula. They had no clue what they were doing, and they had no clue how far they could push the limits. So there was a level of nastiness that was so appealing mm -hmm. and so disturbing and uh, like an exorcism in and of itself, like going to a heavy metal concert and getting in the mosh pit. That's what it was like being in the early stages of the, of the slasher film. And then it turned into this really, really, really derivative cookie cutter thing that was I had a friend at one point say, oh, the slashers, it's, it's like a nice, nice soup. You know, I uh, like home cooked meal. It's like coming home. And I'm like, that's not what fucking horror is for. Watch a movie <laughs> that'll give you a home cooked meal. Horror has a specific thing it's supposed to, it's supposed to surprise you. You're supposed to feel uncomfortable. And so, yeah, it got really weird. It was great for screwing with the squares, right? The yeah, squares hated yeah. slasher films. So we yeah. had a big bully to throw at them. Thematically, it just it made me hold my head. And yet, yeah. if I go back to them, I'm excited by them. Yeah. Well, that's I think I think part of the thing is, is, is that, you know, it's like when a band you like, quote unquote, sells out where it's just like you're never going to, you know, we're never going to get Ride the Lightning again. You know, we're never going to get Kill Em All again. But the Black Album's still OK. You know, like it's that idea to me that. I like the comfort food aspect of something. And Carol J. Clover even talks about this in Men, right. Women, and Chainsaws, that, yes. that like there's, there's something appealing about the predictability of certain elements of it. But you're right. I mean, you, you look at 1981, for example, which was you know the year the slashers broke. Yes. That's the big year for them. All of those films that came out that year are pretty wildly different from each other. Oh, yeah. Even the, even the, like the wilderness slashers, like what, Just Before Dawn, Friday 2, The Burning. The yeah, burning. They're all doing yeah. very different things despite being essentially the same characters, same story. Yeah. But they're, they're very different movies. They, they have a very disturbing nature to them as well. There's an unpredictability. And yeah. some things like Just Before Dawn, 
there's such an embracing of location yes. that works so well in that film. Which is another thing that the good found footage films know how to do. Yes. Is to just oh. let your location do half the work for you. As above, so below. Yeah. I was creeped out before the movie even started. And yeah. I know that, that one's a, a one that is derisive for people, but I really yeah. like that one. Well, I, that I, I one, love how it plays. That is one that initially I did not like just because where sort of, I guess, how you feel about slashers maybe is how I feel about religious horror. I, I like my <laughs> horror to stay out of church. I'm not. Got it. Got it. <laughs> That's interesting. We can have a good conversation about that because I've had a really strange background around. Yeah. That. And there are parts of me that I can't get rid of that recessive gene. Yeah. It's in there. It's funny to me. I, because I love The Exorcist, obviously. Like, you can't be a horror fan and not love The Exorcist, I guess. Right. But it is interesting to me the people that I tend to talk to who have a really strong personal connection to that film, they're all people who were raised Catholic. And, you know, I can watch The Exorcist and say, well, I appreciate this about it. I appreciate that about it. It's a kitchen sink horror movie. It's got all the stuff you need. It, it puts you on the rails and it lets go. I, I, I can love it for all of those reasons, but it'll never like get me, you know, the way that something like Halloween or Blair Witch Project will because I, I, I don't have that experience. Yeah, I talk about that uh, a lot now especially because I hear more and more about this movie couldn't have been made. It couldn't be made now and stuff like that. I'm like, context matters, dude. It's not nearly as draconian as you think the, the, yeah. uh, the, the culture it's what, what is the intent? But it's also the idea that if young kids or young kids, so like I'm 90, but uh, the younger generation is sitting there talking about how they don't quite get, exist or if they just see it as well this is just a police procedural with priests i get that because the world is much more secular now than it was when i was growing up i mean we had just had vatican ii and the idea that the pope was saying that certain sins are no longer sins had people in an uproar yeah church was really really strong in the world and me coming from a, a fundamentalist christian cult uh everything was about demons so it's going to affect me more than it is going to affect people who they grew up and the demons were cutting people's heads off on national television, you mm -hmm. know, the, who are doing things for religion. And all of a sudden religion is like, whoa, maybe that's not the cup of tea I need. And the idea that those things are no longer holding as much sway unless you are devout in some fashion. Yeah. If you don't get what Exorcist was all about, or it seems like the pacing's a little bit slow, that's not your problem. If you grew up <laughs> at this point, that's not your fault. That, that's just how things change, right? You know, this is what it's about. How our anxieties change. One, how our anxieties vary from community to community, from group of people to group of people, or how we identify, and how those anxieties inform cultural or social panics. And, you know, how we get moral panics from that. And, you know, what, what, are the, what are the conflicts? What's the strife of our time? You know, I grew up, I remember when I was a kid, it was Adam Walsh. So it was stranger danger. Right. You know, and that's what the slashers were, more or less. You know, I mean, they, they kind of grew from the first wave slashers, which were more of a, you know, a threat to women, to, you know, we have Freddy Krueger now. And, you know, there was, there's this point where, we had the dangerous slashers of the early 80s, and that kind of ended with Silent Night, Deadly Night when there was a panic about that film and there was outrage about that film. 
And then two weeks later, what happens is Nightmare on Elm Street comes out and boom, we have a second wave. And the second wave now is, is a very different animal in a lot of oh, ways. Yeah. And it's, it's more about formula. I, I'm really, I'm in the doghouse on this. I don't have a lot of support on this, but uh, I don't consider Nightmare on Elm Street a slasher film just because teenagers are being killed. Oh, you know, wow. I see that as far different. Most slasher films before that were not supernatural at all. They no. were a human being killing another human being. They had much more in common with Jalo than they ever had with anything that was supernatural. And Freddy killing people from their dreams and being a metaphor for the idea of the sins of the, fa of the father coming upon the son, the psychological versions of that and the underpinnings of that story are far beyond any slasher. He doesn't use multiple things. He has one instrument. Death by his hand, right? So, yeah. so there's sharp blades. There's no other slasher up to that time. And maybe the, the sequels become a little bit more like that. But the first one is, you know, this whole thing of a, of a vengeance, which is in slasher films, but it becomes metaphysical. And to me, that was a whole different can of worms. And I didn't really see that film as a slash film. I saw it as a ghost story. What's the difference between that and a really disturbing ghost story? Well, there's a little bit more blood. But ghost story itself, Peter Straub's ghost story, is the same story. You know, the revenge of this ghost who's drowned, who comes after these guys all these years later. She takes them out in their dreams and in their hallucinations. They're telling ghost stories to scare each other. And that's not a slasher. So I guess, is it the buckets of blood? I would say that I think it's I think there are a number of elements and I think that this is this is again this is the hybrid vigor idea. It's just an, an element of well this movie is doing this thing now and there's there's teenagers dying, there is a there is a final girl. You know, it's it's more gothic than the other slashers. There's a lot more of the, the there there are supernatural elements that were not really present in the first wave of slashers with exception Uli Lommel's Boogeyman Right. Which is arguably a slasher movie. That's another one I'd argue, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, exactly. It's like, well, that's maybe not what you would consider a slasher movie. Yeah. And yeah, it I mean, all... it's kind of like those movies are following the popular trends, right? Like yeah. you would say that John Carpenter's The Thing is truly groundbreaking, but it's also groundbreaking in a strange way that is really looking at what happened in Alien and looking at what had happened in The Howling and American Werewolf in London, where gore effects, yeah. uh, as well as in the slasher movies, gore effects were part of how you told a story. If you made a horror movie that didn't have any gore effects, there was a level of disappointment for the common viewer because we were used to this heightened thing. So for me, like The Boogeyman and uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, any inner, inner pinings of the slasher thing is more of a what do you want to call it the curtains <laughs> it's the curtains and the drapes <laughs> on the house but at the same point i get you're making a very good point to me that it's hybrid vigor in action i just get crazy when people go you don't like slasher films but you like nightmare on elm street it's a slasher film I'm like oh my goodness you're now going to tell me it's folk horror too yeah <laughs> i look i i <laughs> I mean, it kind of is. There's, there's it folk is folk horror. There's folk horror in it. You they know? tell there's... a story in the middle. Yeah, they tell a story. It's folk horror. Yeah. Yeah, and it is. It's about the the, the monster that's preying on children. What's more folk horror than a monster preying on children? 
Right, exactly. He's, he's the witch in Hansel and Gretel. He's the <laughs> Pied Piper. It's all there, you know, and you can argue back and forth, I guess, about this. But I always have this thing about like, oh, I love slasher movies. And I feel, you know, less and less, obviously, now. But there was a long time in my life where I would get into conversations about horror movies and have to defend slasher movies to people. I hear you. I, that's less the case now, I think. But it definitely like maybe I have that chip on my shoulder from like the last 30 years of <laughs> like, you know, it's a great chip, though, because yeah. you can defend it and you defend it wisely instead of just saying, you know, fuck the feminists or whatever yeah, I've heard no, before. I mean... Anyway, I don't want to go down that path too much. <laughs> it's, it's really more of like I appreciate where you are taking me on uh, on the concept of the slasher, that there are many films that have a foot in that. They all have a foot in shallow films. They have a foot in, in many different types. And I think all of them are valid. Yeah. And it's sort of like in the same way that extreme horror or, you know, what we call torture porn has informed the genre in a way that, you know, stuff that comes out now is going to bear that mark to some degree. You know, slasher yeah. movies left a mark. And in, insofar as that even in the 90s, even in the movie Scream, the term scary movie is shorthand for slasher. Well, it's actually not shorthand. It's it's a longer way of saying it. Right. But, but they're, they're, it's, it's analogous, you know? Right. I guess what I'm trying to say is that I appreciate that you're like, well, I like Nightmare on Elm Street, but it's not a slasher movie, you know? Because that's that's a more interesting conversation to me and always will be a more interesting conversation yeah. to me than, oh, that movie sucks. And it's yeah. like, well, well, then what do we talk about? Yeah, you know? I mean, I'm like I said, I'm kind of in Siberia on that one. I've been to uh, my my friends who I call the Algonquin Roundtable of Horror. They are all very well versed and very mature in their viewing habits. And none of them, I can convince none of them that Nightmare <laughs> on Elm Street's not a slasher film. So obviously, I'm I'm not right. And yet I feel terribly correct about this. I look, I, I got to say, I respect it. I admire that hill that you have fortified. I, <laughs> I, have, <laughs> I have plenty of those myself. But this is the point, right? Is that we find these, these groups, we find these people that appreciate this thing that we appreciate. And whether they're, you know, metalheads or, you know, members of a kink community or some other form of outcast we we find a belonging in this and it's yeah. like you say in the book we bond over popcorn yeah because i'm going to keep just throwing terms that you put in your book <laughs> but <laughs> we all have our horror first kisses you know which is a thing in your book that i really i loved that as well Thank and you. the way that you go into talking about your horror first kiss which is don't look now so this idea of horror first kisses and this idea of finding belonging over the, those, those shared first kisses, whether or not it's the same film, I, we all have multiple different first kisses, you know, or different. I, I also like to say, you know, what's your horror first base? What's your horror second base? <laughs> nice. Because there's, there's different, I think, levels to the evolution of a horror fan. You know, like my, my first, the first time I went to see a movie in the theater that I was excited for and then disappointed by was Halloween oh. five. Oh geez. The first yeah. movie, <laughs> the first movie that I snuck into that was full of the, the crowd, the horror crowd that you would get in the late eighties and early nineties. Mm -hmm. of the people that were there opening night that were just loud and boisterous and just yeah. having a good time was Friday the 13th part eight, Jason takes Manhattan. Oh, wow. So these these movies, these like movies that even I admit are inferior films, 
have a very special place in my heart for very personal reasons. Halloween five, not so much, but Halloween four was the first movie I saw in the theater that I was excited about seeing before seeing it. I have movies like that where I completely understand if people can't don't like them, if they flat out hate them or they flat out think that they're trash. But I love them and I will tell people I completely understand. Uh, it's uh, I think Stephen King talked about a kind of in Dance Macabre. I guess I have a version of his nugget theory. One of the things that I think is so important why we love our first kisses is that I think we so want to be surprised. The element of surprise is in there. It somehow takes us in a place we didn't expect. Like for me, there are trash films that I really, oh, trash, I shouldn't call them trash. They're turkeys, right? Yeah. I always have this weird relationship with the idea of the good, bad binary where it's like, yeah. you know, right. I, I don't want to say a movie is bad. It's, it's low budget. It's regional. It's made by people who didn't really know what they're doing, but you can tell there's a dream in there. You can tell there's heart yes. in there. And, and yeah. some of my favorite films are those films. So yeah. Yeah. I have a much bigger distaste of the uh, sequel factory that just continues to deaden the, the thing that they love into the ground than I do for the movies that you had just mentioned, the regional ones, the ones where they just wanted to make a movie and they knew that they had fish, a fish tank. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going to make a movie where the fish are going to be monsters. Does anybody yeah. have a small PT boat we can put in there? You know, whatever it is, they would do these things. And they're, they're corny, they're wonky, but they always surprise you, right? Yeah. You're, you're like, I didn't expect that to be so weird. It will take you by surprise. And I think that's what the good horror movies as well do. I'm starting to write a second book. And in that book, I'm talking about things like the raise the bar moments where what we want, what we're yes. always after, that, that kiss is reclaiming that first kiss. But it's kind of like, why do I also love trash films? It's because I always want to be surprised. And if I see you raising the bar, by doing something either unique or going above and beyond the call to enrich your film. There are things that I've noticed that I like in films that if I see it, I know that the movie's already going to be kind of good, which is like um, <laughs> USS Indianapolis story of Jaws, right? If yeah. you stop the movie to do weird foreshadowing with a creepy story that's not really furthering the plot, but just giving me a sense of dread, I'm going, you're good. I'm saying, yeah. that's cool. You just deepen the story. You got me listening, which is what we don't do very often in movies. And I, I talk about like a red ball moment. I talk about the red ball moment from The Changeling, which is George C. Scott's in his, this weird house he's not supposed to be in, and it's haunted. And this little ball comes down these big steps. He sees the ball. He's pissed over it. And he drives over to a bridge, and he throws the ball over the thing and goes in the water. And uh, he comes home, and as soon as he gets in the door, he's putting his jacket up. Boom, 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 boom. The red ball comes back down the stairs. And that is a certain thing, which is like a clever way that the reveal of, is this real? Is this fantasy? Is this uh, hallucination? Is this supernatural? Is answered. But it's just answered to one person. And it's done easily, subtly, or maybe sometimes not so subtle, but if you have something in your movie that's like the hand clap in The Conjuring, or you have the ball rolling down, I'm going, you're, you're trying to freak me out. You're remembering that this is a campfire story. And so I think stories within stories sometimes are really good to, huge, to raise yeah. these movies. I'm a huge fan of that. Yeah. Elements of surprise. And I'm always, uh, if you can surprise me with the weirdest thing, 
then I'm really into your movie, even if it sucks. And that's the ones that I die on the on the uh, on the hills on. Phantasm is one where people who, if they did not grow up in the time that I grew up, they're like, "Why do you like this movie?" Because it's it's corny, it's silly, it's weird, but it's also it's also Fellini. Yeah. It's also like it's also like it's also a Nicholas Rogue. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's Nicholas- yeah. There's so much that, that's not linear time in that movie. There's all this strange stuff that's happening in that film. And it also was a movie where I think people who love Phantasm that are my age should think about how they feel about Phantasm when they're wondering why the new Candyman is so important mm-hmm. or why movies uh, from different groups like uh, Blood Quantum. Adore Why is that, that movie film. so important? Yeah. yeah, it's important because people are finally being seen and be, they're telling the story of being seen. And so for me, Phantasm was so important because it wasn't cookie cutter. You're teenagers in the nice Elm Street kind of area, the suburbs. It was uh, kids where the parents aren't around anymore. It's kids that I knew who were kind of on their own. The, the brothers are on the porch playing music, drinking Dos Equis. They're working on a car. They have weapons in the house. They're hunters. <laughs> and they talk yeah. about things like, you know, don't point a gun at somebody unless uh, you intend to use it. The kid rides around on a bicycle or he just walks aimlessly. He's wearing a jeans jacket. I felt seen. This was marginalized American youth. This yeah. was the youth that is on the edge of town where there are cars in the driveway on blocks. Those are the people that I grew up with, and you didn't normally see that. Or if you did, they were the bad guys, or they were just some somebody that was going to be fodder. They were what Joss Whedon used to say about Buffy. The cheerleader always died in the first five minutes of the movie. You want to make a movie where the cheerleader ends up being the hero. And I think uh, that kind of spirit is in Phantasm, where you have people who normally would be subplot characters. I mean, there's a guy who has a ponytail, but he's balding and he runs an ice cream truck. That's his life. He plays guitar. Yeah. These are mellow hippie types or mellow 70s types that are uh, suddenly thrown into this thing. And it makes all the weirdness somehow a little bit more grounded. And, And so I think that that's something to remember when we're looking at movies like Candyman and stuff where you're going, well, I don't understand. It doesn't seem like it's written for me. Well, maybe it's not written for you, but can you understand how that's kind of important that there are people who need to feel seen and have their stories told and have it feel legitimate. Right. And, Mm -hmm. and I think that I'm looking forward to that because I'm a greedy, greedy, greedy uh, (laughs) horror fan. I want new stories, you know, and the stories don't really have to be different. It's just the perspective shift, right? It's just a shift of the focal lens. Well, that's you're you're also like, again, it's we're not to use addiction terminology (laughs) too cavalierly, but we're always chasing the first kiss as well. Yes. Like we're always we're every time I sit down to watch a horror movie, I am hoping that it gives me that experience or get or surprises me in some way. And even the movies, like I, I tend to have a more nuanced take on stuff now uh, where I'll say, yeah, I like this about that thing. I didn't like that about that thing. Or, you know, maybe the movie's not for me and that's okay. But it still always comes from this place of like, no, I want that. Like, and I think that that's the problem is that people that, that they lose sight of that. They lose sight of that they want it to be good. They want it to scare them or to thrill them in some way. And so 
you know, they, they maybe forget that that's the reason for it. So when it doesn't do that, they take it personally or, or what have you. I think a lot of, a lot of it, honestly, is just people conflating appreciation with identity, which is yes. something that's very easy to do. Again, when we're talking about people that consider themselves to be outcasts or consider themselves right. to be alienated from whatever dominant social paradigm. And we found this thing and hey, horror saved my life. So I want it to be special to me forever. And it's just like, yeah, but understand that that needs to be available for all people. So we need more people who aren't you <laughs> to right. be telling their stories. I hear you on that. Exactly. I, I've talked about that a bit with people that I know the white guy story yeah. very well. Yeah. Now, and, and that story is never going to go away. That's always going to be in, in the culture. So I don't feel threatened by that. No. But I also, I want to know other stories. I think it's crazy to assume that I don't need to know that. And I, I like the term that you use. I'm trying to remember what you're conflating. Appreciation with identity. Yeah. 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 I, I think that's a very smart way to look at it. What also I get, I hit on is people saying that they don't like jump scares. You love jump scares. They are the chicken in the stoop. Yeah. (laughs) You just, you hate the bad ones. You hate the unoriginal ones. You hate the the lazy ones. But we all love a jump scare. I I just want to let you know, you've just made a friend for life. Because (laughs) anytime somebody repeats that cliche, right, of, I don't like jump scares. I like suspense. And it's just like, they're part of the same thing. Like, and you do like jump scares. Because yes. you like The Exorcist, and The Exorcist has plenty of jump scares. You Absolutely. like The Ring, and The Ring has jump scares. You like Blair Witch Project. Blair Witch Project, believe it or not, has a couple jump scares in it. Oh, yeah. And I think we don't like the cat being thrown at the person. We don't like uh, the person who goes into a room and don't turn the lights on and somebody jumps up. I get that. But there are, the jump scares are so important. The loot and bus. You know, it's been going since the cat people, you know, the whole idea of just a sound cut that's going yeah. to scare you. Yeah. We love that. We want to be kept on edge. And I love the ones that we're getting now in the dread filled movies where you can have a close up on a door handle and camera can be across the room and it just keeps rolling forward, forward, forward. And then the jump happens. One of my favorites right now is from the movie His House. Oh, it's so house? good. Yeah, it's so Holy good. Holy cow. When he's when he's uh, washing the dishes or whatever. And there's like this sound from the other room and he looks and there's just this barely perceptible figure in the other room, like looking like they're wearing a white silk something or other. And he's looking and it's almost like his eyes are starting to adjust and you just see a little bit more and like, and it's totally quiet. And then there's the sound of the plates settling in the sink and it cuts over to that. And then there's this weird shot of the camera moves forward and you hear this of feet running and it's a little kid and it goes in front of a shadowy light and i i still i get it works so well it's one of the very few perfectly timed jump scares that i've ever seen and i was like bravo he didn't invent the door he didn't invent the ghost he didn't invent the plate settling but he did them all to perfection yeah and when they can when you know and this is my thing with james wan is that i'm not i'm not a huge fan of most of his films but ah. he does know how to construct a successful jump scare and oh, in a way me. in a way that will cause me to overlook whatever else i like i love the first conjuring movie solely yeah. because those jump scares are all so well executed 
I'm a big fan of all his first films in the series. I'm not a fan of his other uh, the sequels. Yeah. I'm like that a lot with sequels. I just feel that so many of them, they do the exact opposite of what I think good horror does. Good horror doesn't answer a damn question. It doesn't care what you want to know. It keeps you in that unknown. And there's always some sense. But the more you define what the beast is, the more comfortable everybody gets. So it's very writerly. There's nothing wrong with it. But at the same point, I think that they deaden the things that I love, which is the element of surprise. Like the end of Psycho always kills me. Such a great movie. Just wish it ended on that swinging light bulb. And that was it. Not having Simon Oakland come in and all of a sudden the scary person that could be in everybody's backyard. Oh, don't worry. We have him. And it was all a mommy issue. And it's like, he went back to the old school of, of telling horror stories. He was in the modern horror movie, and then he went right back into the old gothic horror thing with that end, explaining. That's always the the catch sometimes. Not always, but a lot of times, too. Like, even in your book, you, you, you mention Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, and it's the need to walk back from what that movie was saying. And it's like, if I remember correctly, Meyer and, and Janowitz both hated that ending. Like, that wasn't yes. their idea. They didn't no. want that to be the ending. And the studio was like, what do you want people to riot? We, got, we, can't, we can't have it this way. And it's like, yeah, sometimes we need to riot, though. And yet, that ending, it's kind of like the ending of Nightmare on Elm Street. There's three endings in there. Because they couldn't pick one. Yeah, they, they didn't know really how to end it. So Bob Shea had an idea. Craven had an idea. And I forget who the third one was. But they mixed all three of them together. And you get this And they thing were all jump scares, I think. Or two of them yeah, were jump scares. Two of them were jump scares. And the other one was just the car driving away and the yeah. little girls. But yeah, the funny thing is, really, that, that weird ending to Caligari, I think, is one of the things that makes it so relevant to the times that it was made. Because it really, the idea of the unreliable narrator you know, that was really only a literature trope at that point. That was something that you would get out of Edgar Allan Poe. Mm-hmm. But you didn't get in movies a narrator that you're following that then yeah. becomes unreliable. It really kind of set a, a different standard. And I think it comments on, you know, the uh, Weimar Republic a little bit more as well. Well, again, that's kind of the thing we were talking about with Texas Chainsaw Massacre at the beginning of our conversation is that sometimes you need that removal. And and sometimes the decision, what a film decides not to show you, tells yes. you more about the conditions it was made in and therefore tells you more about what horror was at the time or what the social anxieties were than what the film does show you or does tell you. And I, yes. yeah, I think that in the case of Caligari, that is one of those. I mean, it's been a while since I've revisited it, but I remember watching it in film school and, and our, and our yeah. professor being like, well, this is what it should have been. And I and I remember thinking, like, it's kind of weirder this way, though. And I kind of like weird. Yeah, it's very surreal. I, I love uh, that that's what we always see in films where we see Cal- – well, I went yeah. to, in San Francisco. So it was Cabin of Dr. Caligari and Night of the Living Dead. Those are the two horror movies yeah. that, that would actually – and they showed a third one. They didn't really call it a horror movie, which was uh, – oh, my goodness. Uh, Birth of a Nation. Oh, yeah. we also watched uh, uh, Triumph of the Will. So both of those, in a weird way, are, are, are definitely very horrifying. Horrifying. Yeah. Uh, and... for, for a number of reasons. But oh yeah, I, I was fortunate enough that the college I went to, they offered a horror film class, which was... Oh, yay. I, mean, I it love was, that that's I, happening now. Yeah. I think it's great. It was so great to have that. Now, 
granted that was 20 years ago so i <laughs> don't know how uh how it's I looking think they're now. bigger now i think they're, they're probably more now, focused even there's probably like a japanese horror class and a german silent horror class and I, i've a, i've lectured i've lectured at two universities so far that people who have uh, read the book said can you be on zoom mostly but can yeah. you talk about horror and and do a quick lecture on that and you know talk about your manifesto of horror <laughs> and uh, and it's been fun and the idea that I think it's a wonderful future because to be able to corrupt young talented minds that want to speak to people and have them go no no horror is is legitimate you know it's not the, the greasy kid stuff that it was at one point yeah. discussed at it's not going to ever be thoroughly respectable, but it's so much better off now because I think pop culture and culture, there is no line anymore. Yeah. And there used to be a line that the old school of the Kales and the Saracens were able to guard the border and say, Oh, well that's silly. And this is where real drama starts. I think yeah. everybody bought into that, including actors who sat there and said, why would I want to be in such trivial messes? And I never understood it because you can really do some interesting stuff. I mean, I got to tell serious you, serious acting. I have a whole thing about genre acting and how I, I very much believe that genre acting is more challenging and is more impressive than your, than your run of the mill, you know, movie about divorce or movie about whatever. Cause again, like you said, Horror can happen in any setting. And yeah. sometimes you get that movie about a divorce, but hey, there's also a shadow monster around. Right. And that requires an actor to be bringing all of that to it as well. And yeah. I, I think that's way more challenging. Yeah. It really is weird to me. Yeah. Taking of Deborah Logan is an amazingly acted film. And that's a story that that's a movie about a mother who's got, you know, Alzheimer's and a daughter who's in the closet. Like it's a, yes. it's a, it's a movie about a mother and daughter relationship that is challenged yeah. by the woman's kind of traditionalist values regarding sexuality and the daughter's refusal to understand the mother's deteriorating yeah. state. Like that's what that movie is. But also there's a fucking snake cult. And yes. That's, that's right. to me is way more impressive than if the movie was just about the mother and daughter having this this rift in their relationship. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's like Jamie Lee Curtis uh, years and years ago in an interview, probably for the 40th anniversary of Halloween or, or somewhere in that area, was talking about how Laurie Strode was the best character, the deepest character, the biggest acting challenge that she had because she had to be resourceful. She had to be scared. She had to be the smart one. She had all this depth of, of quiet. It was physical. All these things. She was a fully rounded person who could be scared and also resourceful. And she's the one who solves the problem. She goes, you know how many movies I was in, straight up dramas and stuff where I was just helpless? And it's like, <laughs> yeah. There's yeah. This, uh, it, it's, it's incredible that there, there's all the way from the perils of Pauline. There is uh, this, this thing where the idea of the action film, the genre film, whatever it is, where there is someone who is in peril is in the title that they need to be resourceful. Either they're going to be saved by the guy, the hero, which is the problem, or there is this thing where we are thoroughly absorbed in the struggle and the movies that allow the struggle to happen. Like I think the Babadook is amazing because it, yeah. it goes down paths that you're just not allowed to go down. 
right? You're not allowed to go in, into that in dramas. It's hard enough, you know, to do something like what was the whispers in the dark, the the dingoes ate my baby. Oh uh, yeah. That that whole thing talking about a stone mother, you know, a mother who is on trial because she doesn't seem as horrified and guilt-ridden or, or grief-ridden because her children are dead as the public wants her to be. So they think she's guilty. And the Duke talks about, you know, something that I don't think a, a male director would have wanted to talk about, which is, you know, what if grief is so big and nasty that you really hate your kid? You know, yeah. mothers are not supposed to feel that way ever. They're not given the, the latitude to go down that path. And yet this movie allows that. I mean, the Babadook is the thought you can't get rid of, the bad thought that's there, that until you face it, it's going to fester and try to eat you. And I thought that, that was great because these are true, honest feelings. And I love where horror has been going. We have movies about cowardice, uh, the Bruckner film was uh, basically about surviving the shame of cowardice. You know, all of this strange stuff uh, is being talked about that never used to be talked about. Certainly not your hero. The coward would be the guy in Aliens, right? You know, Burke, you know, that's your coward. And it's a very token thing. But actually going into the essence of cowardice is interesting. The essence of grief, his new one, The Night House, Bruckner's new one, The Night House. I still haven't. I'm really excited to see it. It's been on my list, but I I haven't got a chance to watch it yet. Yeah, it's a strange and challenging film, but it talks more about grief and suicide and the what it feels like when you don't really know the person. You never thought that would happen. One day they're just gone. And as you're looking through their stuff, you start to realize how much of a filter there was between you and the loved one yeah. that you had. And so that's really intriguing stuff. This is not greasy kid stuff. This is stuff no. that uh, is really uh, heavy duty, hard hitting. That's sort of the blessing and the curse of it too, right? Is that like the same thing that makes, you know, sort of the mainstream opinion of horror, whether it truly believes this way or not, but to be one of like relegating it to the, you know, the, right. the dregs or the, you know, the second class status is the same thing that excuses it to tell these stories that allows horror to kind of say things that you maybe not, are going to get away with in a, in a drama or a comedy or something. You 100%. Know? Absolutely agree with that. That is my thing that I say about horror. It's like, is it going to be considered politically incorrect? Probably. Yeah. But is it politically incorrect for the proper reasons? Well, you know, I can go down that path or not. But what I like to say is horror has a purpose. Horror is that dark woods that Joseph Campbell has the hero's journey go into. The woods do not come to you. You must go to the woods. And to me, it's like horror is not here to share half of its sandwich with you at lunch. This is a, a different reason. What horror is here for is for you to confront these terrible things. It is looking at that Jungian shadow. You want to get that, that firm handshake with your shadow. You want to accept and acknowledge these things, but you don't want to become your shadow. You know, there are all these reasons that I can give that I think that horror needs to be the the unpopular opinion. It needs to be that anxiety spot. It needs to be the emperor's new clothes kid that basically looks over at the emperor and says he's naked. You know, there needs to be that thing. Whether it's important that it knows that it's an advocate for that is unimportant. But I think mm-hmm. what is important is that we have that outlet. And that's what horror is here for. You can get all the other stuff elsewhere. 
but this is the place where kind of like we talked about heavy metal before. I like to say that heavy metal or music and horror are very similar in the way that they're all about the feeling first and then you can think about it. It mm -hmm. gets away from the, the brain because sometimes the brain's the problem. If I go to a psychiatrist, he goes, what's wrong with you today? What are you feeling? And I'm like, uh, it's you know some inarticulate thing that I cannot tell you what my problem is. It's some deep down thing that I'm not addressing and I'm not looking at. We can spend months, maybe years trying to figure out what that is. But I go to a heavy metal concert and I hear the first chord and I'm going to get an exorcism through physicality. I'm going to have the sweat leave me. Somehow that works on the thing that I cannot speak to. It gets past the brain, which might be the problem, and it goes right to the heart of the gut. And horror does the same thing. Art doesn't need to be smart, but it needs to have emotion. If it doesn't have emotion, it's dead. And I think that horror is there for those things that we can't articulate that would sound insane to talk about in a drama. They would never want to sit and talk about, whereas you can still address it and get these emotions across and have these little stingers. Horror is broad, and what uh, horror is about is super subjective. What scares you may not scare me. What scares me might put someone else in a coma. And because it needs to be that broad, it also is there for everybody. And I can find middle ground with people uh, over the movies that I love because we are scared of the same thing. We just may put the, a different metaphor to the monster. That's a good button on it. Like, you know, my, my thing with metal, and this is, you know, it could be because of anxiety, depression, ADHD, what have you, is that I'm always scared. I'm always worried. I've always got a storm going on. And metal, heavy metal, when I listen to it, it's like a cabin pressure situation where the music that I'm hearing is now matching what's already going on inside me. Right. So I, I feel like acclimated. You know, it's it's like yep. when you put a, a goldfish in a in a bag in the water in a tank so that the temperature can can line up. Yeah. And horror is kind of the same way in that it takes my anxieties and it gives them something to play with. Yes. So I, I, it's no longer about the intellectual response. It's about the, you know, and, and again, like we said, filmmakers, whatever their intent, sometimes they accidentally do something that matches yeah. that. Sometimes they accidentally do something that speaks to it. And, you know, yeah, it's, we're all afraid of the same stuff. You know, that's, yeah. you even talk about that in the book, this idea of the known horror, which yeah. I really love, you know, and, and its relationship to uh, senescence and the fact that like we are programmed to die. And that is a thing mm -hmm. that we know. And that's right. what we're all scared of. And what comes after is scary because we don't know what it is. But the known quantity itself is also scary. Yeah. yeah. Because we can't I... do anything about it. And however you want to dress that up in your film, you know, that it, it'll speak to somebody and maybe not somebody else, but it, there's room for all of it. Yeah. You know, why I talk about it being happy and healthy, uh, Har, is we find that equilibrium that you're talking about. Uh, it's hard for me to explain to people who don't really like horror movies or don't understand why anybody would want to watch a horror movie, how I can feel better after watching one. And it's the idea of being seen. It's the idea of feeling my story was told. Like you mentioned, don't look now. You know, I, I didn't articulate that as an eight-year-old, why that movie affected me so much, but I knew it was about I can't trust my parents because we're going through a divorce and everything. My parents aren't going to save me. It was just this very 
primal thing. But I also get that I was seen. If someone had made a movie about this, someone else has felt this way. And it just felt like, oh, I'm understood in a weird way, even though nobody's ever met me that made this movie. You find your your group as well. You find the folks that are like you. And you find that so many people have the same issues. Like I, I like to say that so many of the horror fans that I meet, especially the ones that are like me, tattooed and all sorts of stuff and queer and things, uh, we have had a bad first act. Our second act is pretty splendid. We somehow learned to accept these pieces of us that we weren't able to accept before. We looked at the darkness and said, that's okay, that's normal, that's human. And we danced a little bit with that shadow. We did not become that shadow. And we realize that there are no bad emotions. There are just bad responses to emotions. Yeah. You can be a terrible person over an emotion that's dark, but that doesn't mean that there are, that are good emotions and bad emotions. That binary of emotion is weird as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. they're, they're all human. They're all natural. And when we realize that going through this, watching this horror movie allows us to accept a part of ourselves that we may not have looked at before, we feel seen. We find ourselves group that we are with. We are able to work out some of our angst and some of our anxiety and not even need to know why. It just, we get an equilibrium. All of that stuff together and a sense of play. One of the things we didn't talk about. There is a sense of play to dealing with death. You know, looking it straight in the eye and saying, I'm going to dance. You know, there is something really strong about that. I laugh because at some point you're going to get me death and I won't be laughing then. But for now, I'm going to laugh. And I'm going to relieve that. And there is something. I mean, you can't you know, giant rubber monsters and severed heads and fake blood. There's a certain level of you got to take this with a grain of salt and laugh. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, it's, that's why one of my all time favorites is Toby Hooper's The Fun House. Oh, because God. it is, it is take it's it's very much an anti slasher movie, despite being yes. a, one of the yes. first wave slasher. Very movies. much so. It's such a melancholy film. It's such yeah. a cynical film in a lot of ways. But it's in this environment of like, oh, yeah. there's a thing popping out, and up oh, the, the killer's wearing a mask, and oh, well, he looks even weirder without the mask. Like this, this element of play and how you can you can exploit that in a number of different ways. What do all skulls have in common? They're all smiling, you know? Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, Very good. Rip, Very good. Rip the skin off my face and I'm grinning. That's, that's yeah. kind of the, the way to look at it, I guess. <laughs> it's one way. Yeah. I like it. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, it works for us, you know? It works for right. us and we find the other people that that works for. I want to, I guess the, the big thing to me towards the end of your book here is, you know, you go through all of this biographical information about yourself. That's where that's where I connect as a reader. Is like, okay, you know, the, the, it's the proper nouns, it's the details that somehow make it universal. You know, like I, my grandfather didn't have white lung, but I know what it's like to lose a grandfather. These parts of your experience that kind of lead you to discovering horror as as a you know a part of yourself that you want to give back to, and going to that convention in Chicago. Just the very idea here at work is put yourself out there. And that's a thing that I struggle with. And it's a thing that, that I find uh, a lot of comfort in horror regarding. One of my anxieties are social anxieties, you know, and, and especially going to conventions. You know, I've been to some conventions, but the idea of like meeting new people and talking to them, it's all so terrifying. And you yes. even talk about that in the book about how this is, you know, 
I could have just not done this, but I, I did it. And now I have this whole thing. And I, the whole story in your book is kind of about that. It's kind of about saying like, no, I'm going to go into that video store. No, I'm going to watch this movie that's upsetting me. No, I'm going to go talk to those people at this convention. And that's a thing that really resonated with me. And I just, it's, I feel like it might not be something that other people ask about. Yeah, well, thank you for that. It, it isn't something that I'm asked about. So where are you at with that now, I guess is my question. You're working on a second book, which mm -hmm. is great to hear. And you're, you're, doing, you're doing speaking engagements and you're going to yeah. conventions. And it's like... Yeah, it's, it's so soul feeding. I, I think, I'm not sure if I mentioned in the book or not, or if I mentioned in the lectures and things, but I talk about how I vacillate towards people who are compelled to create. You know, they can't just be spectators. This affects them so deeply. It touches them so deeply. It's so changing and altering for them, so elating that they must create in some way. And it might be a podcast. It might be a book. It might be drawing T-shirts. It might be making posters. It might be reviewing, creating uh, nonfiction stuff, starting your own film, uh, your own film company, a distribution company, whatever it is. People who feel music, so many bands I know that uh, the people started as horror fans and they just wanted to make like the cramps. You can go all the way back to the cramps. You know, these bands that were like, we wanted to make monster movies in music. That is something that excites me. And I think it's also the idea, and I don't want to say of the gift of desperation, but I'll, I mentioned it before, the first act kind of sucked for a lot of the friends that I have and we're having a great second act. I think horror is the rope that pulls us out of the icy pond. We're about to drown. Hypothermia is about to take us. Life is just not working out. And we were numb. We're about to go numb. And we may live for a long life, but have this quiet desperation underneath. And horror to us, and it could be anything, but for me, it's horror. Horror allowed me to come to life. It allowed me to go place. Now, with that, there's therapy and a whole bunch of other well, things yeah, yeah. that got me through stuff. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not like, I'm, yeah, I'm not saying, you know, a Friday the 13th marathon is going to cure lumbago or anything. But at the same point, I, I am saying that the sharp end of the arrow, tended to be the point of the arrow, was that horror in its darkness. <laughs> to be really corny, I'll go to the Blue Oyster Cult song, Don't Fear the Reaper. In that, the Reaper is the only compassionate character. It understands that you are at the end and it's going to guide you and says, don't be afraid. And it gives you all these things like 100,000 people every day die and it's talking about suicide and she feels so alone. Now she's not. That there is this thing about the darkness of being in the hopelessness and all of a sudden this thing, horror comes and you can control that. I can't control the rest of the things that are happening in my life mm -hmm. that horrify me, that put me in a darkness. But I can turn on the movie and turn it off if it gets too scary, or I can make it through it. I can read the book or I can put it away. And there's something about having a little bit of control over one piece of nightmare that suddenly is empowering. Being seen in horror is empowering. And having it be the safe version, an arm's length away from death. This safe version can sometimes get you out. And it was the idea that, you know, once I got on land, it was like, oh, the passion moves me forward. And the next thing I know, I want to share this with other people. 
the folks that I hang out with, it's not about hoarding. They may have collectibles and stuff. None of them are in the boxes. <laughs> you know, these people <laughs> play with their toys. You know, these are people who watch the movies again and again. None of them are hoarders. They want to give it away. All the people that I get along with the most can talk hours about this stuff with anybody. And they only hate posers. They only hate the person <laughs> who says that they're the expert who walks in and pretends that they've seen the movies. That drives them crazy. But other than that, if you're someone who comes in and says, I've never seen these movies, I don't even know why you watch them, that's actually great. I go to conventions, and I, I say this to people in conventions because there's always somebody who'll walk across the room just to go, I don't like horror. Like, why did you even <laughs> walk across the here? room? Yeah, why would you do that? So I sit there and I go, well, you know, what's funny is that when I talk to someone who's a horror fan, it usually lasts about 20 minutes. If I'm talking to someone who's not a horror fan, it usually lasts around 20 minutes because they're very passionate about this subject. No matter what, you're compelled to talk about it. It has a very powerful and pungent thing to it that people either go to or repel from. And I love the idea of slowly bringing people into it by saying, listen, you don't have to love it all, but I guarantee you yeah. that there is a movie out there that can release some steam for you that will give you the sense of thrill and appreciation and that sense of play that I'm talking about. All it is is finding that one. The umbrella is wide. And so many times, like the critics that don't like us and all of that, I don't think that they hate horror films. I think they hate horror film fans. I think they see us as mouth-breathing knuckle-draggers that like to look at the lowest common denominator of, of stuff. And that's unfair. And I try to change that by meeting in my own way, that conversation with myself. I think in a way that, you know, the they might also just be afraid of what horror does for people. You know, they might, they might, they're not comfortable seeing the shadow person in themselves. So the idea that others are is also threatening to them. It is, it is a thing where it's like, someone tells me they don't like horror and I'm always like, bullshit. Right. I can name, I can name a horror movie you like. Right. You, you say you don't like it, catch all, but there are at least three horror movies that you love. And they, yeah. sure, they might be like the hits, but you know, if you acknowledge that you like the hits, then we can get you into the B-sides and the deep cuts. Like, Yeah, exactly. And there's so many films that you don't think are horror films that are. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's exciting to just be a part of it, to be a part mm -hmm. of the conversation. This, yes. Again, in the book, you talk about the water drop erosion effect. Yes. And, you know, every time you create something in the conversation, you're contributing to that. I mean, it's like, you know, Forey Ackerman starting Famous Monsters yes. created the film Equinox, which led to yep. the, the founding of ILM, yep. Evil Dead and all these other things. Like you're part of a tradition. You're part yep. of, a, of a lineage. It's one huge conversation that started around the first campfire, but really caught a lot of steam because of Mary Shelley and Bram Stoker, you know, and folks like mm -hmm. that who kept that conversation going. But I love that you brought up like Forey. I often think about how in this time period, there are so many avenues for you to find horror. People are watching South Korean horror movies. You know that there was only a few folks like me that would do that. You have to like really go to the weird people that didn't leave their basement to find people who are into South Korean horror films. And now it's the number one seller on Netflix. I mean, the diversity is incredible. It's incredible what's, what's out there now. There's so yeah. many things. It's a great But I time. think about people like Forey, and I think about people like Bob Martin at Fangoria, 
Dan Curtis, another one. These people who, oh, by nature of them being the oddballs in a society where this really wasn't anything that people were going to follow, we inherited their passions. Like, would we have ever come around to Santo and the Blue Demon if it wasn't for Bob Martin being a Mexican horror wrestling fan? We inherited the passions and the fetishes of a group of people, kind of like how there was this group of critics that made Calle du Cinema, and kind of like there were the, the mm-hmm. Saracens and the uh, Kales and all of those folk who are really holding New York in a stranglehold. And that's what art was going to be during those golden years of the 70s. All of that is learned behavior. We learn what is considered fascinating. We are fascinated by the passion of people who can prove that. And I think that Forey and those guys were that. And so much of it came from these small areas. Like when I was growing up, there was Fangoria, there was Starlog, there was Cinema Fantastique. There were a couple other things, and that was it. And you had to uh, mail people yeah. that you wanted to know. <laughs> you know, all of that stuff was happening. And so we all kind of like the same things. We kind of have that language if we're of a certain age. And I think that that's very interesting. So I feel that we have an opportunity to be part of this really big fabric. And perhaps our loves, which are extensions of the loves of others, we are another generation that can keep this stuff going and moving forward. You know, on that note, where are you? So you've got another book coming out. One question ahead. You, you have a, a section in the book where you go over different phobias oh, right. and you recommend different films for those phobias, which I think is is terrific. I'm wondering if, if you're going to do an entire book on misophobia at this point going into 2022, because I imagine you'd written this before the pandemic. Yes. So it was just it's interesting to catch like, to, you know, what is it? Um, was it Contagion? Yes. I wrote about Contagion. I remember at the beginning of the pandemic when everyone was watching that movie and you probably wrote this bef- well before that. So yeah, yeah. is that going to be included at all in the new book? That's an interesting question. I'm not necessarily sure if it feels like it's organically put into what I'm talking about. I certainly will. Because it might be talked about in, like, it's going to be a podcast. I have this one that I'm still trying to get done. When I do my long form essays, sometimes it takes some damn time to put together. And <laughs> I can sympathize. Yeah. I, I have... The two final episodes of the found footage season, uh, people have been waiting on for, I think, two years now. Oh, my God. Because yeah. it's just taking me forever. I had, I had one like that. I had a desert one that I did that I loved the idea and it kept getting pushed to the side because people wanted to do interviews with me and all of this stuff. And it wasn't like I didn't have a good idea, but it just was one of those that it was a black hole of time. And it took a year for me to get the damn thing out. And I just kept doing other episodes instead of going back to it. And I have this one now called Seasons of the Abyss. And it's what I'm talking about is how I didn't watch contagion type films during the thing. Same. I I, couldn't handle it. Yeah. I ended up instead watching things that were talking indirectly about it. I was watching things like Saint Maud, which is about how passion can kill you, right? And uh, so you have the, uh, there were so many stories that came out, including documentaries that were about cult leadership going awry during this time when people are not believing, half the world doesn't believe that what's happening is happening. And I found that I was looking at movies like uh, Synchronic, uh, which is the 
No, the the, Benson, from the guys that did the endless. Yeah, Benson and Moorhead. Yeah, yeah. Benson and Moorhead. That movie resonated with me as a pandemic film. It's set in New Orleans, and it's following burnt-out first responders and people taking huge amounts of drugs as the depression of what's happening in the world continues to take them down. And this new drug, Synchronic, makes you basically Billy Pilgrim. You're unstuck in time. And so it's an interesting idea. But what I felt is that this is indirectly talking about not the disease, but the malaise. And I'm more interested in the malaise than I am in the disease. And so I think I may speak to that in the book. Because I'm looking at how do we raise the bar in horror without having to spend extra money? Money has nothing to do with whether the movie's going to be good or not. It's the ideas that matter. And how do we keep it fresh? Well, if we don't like the tropes, let's reverse engineer the tropes, see where it works. Let's talk about the movies that work. Let's start taking these things that we dislike and say, why does this work? And for me, a lot of times, it's all about keeping the subtext below the text. If it comes up above the text, it starts bubbling up. That's when it really starts to fall apart. So how do we keep it down there? And some of the ways that you do that is you don't go directly at the monster or you don't make the monster the direct problem. You don't go on the nose. You find something else. And I think talking about pandemic, I mean, we were talking about the pandemic before we knew we were talking about the pandemic. The entire thing of the walking dead, we were already talking about the system no longer holding. How would we respond? I mean, we didn't respond anywhere near as good as we would hope. And we're still not responding very well to it. Yeah. You know, I got to say, in another film that you you mentioned, there's a, I have a list of movies that you name drop in the book where I was like, yep, I like you. I like you. I like that. Like, just anytime there's a George Kushar name drop nice. or something, I'm like, yep, we're the same cloth, you and I. But one, one film you, you mentioned is Them, the, yeah. the giant ant movie, which I love. I adore Them. Yeah. And I, I love- just saw it again. At a drive-in. Oh, what? Was it a a Mahoning? Yes, that was the Mahoning. I think that was one of the two movies. It was one of the two movies that Joe Bob Briggs showed. So it's probably on on the live show that he did. But it was wonderful. And I gotta say, I was I was thoroughly enthralled. And he just went down this whole thing of why them is so great, which is everybody works together. It's like, oh fuck. The world's coming apart. Giant ants. Fuck. Let's all get into the boat. We, my partner and I, during, you know, when the pandemic was first starting, we did a lot of, we'd been watching a lot of Star Trek for one. We, we were watching a lot of what I like to call cooperation porn, which is just, <laughs> funny. you know, Star Trek is a, is a good example of that. But also these, these old monster movies about a threat and a bunch of people working together to solve the problem. And it's like that idea is so foreign to us now that to watch these movies and see like, oh man, look at that. It's so great to watch a government that gives a shit fixing this giant ant problem. It's heading towards LA. We're moving. We're going at it. And admitting, admitting that we were the problem. I mean, that's the thing. The scientist, he says, this is Pandora's box. And they listen to him. They listen to the scientist. Yeah, they listen to the scientist. And everything about it. I mean, it's in basically Los Alamos. <laughs> it's in New yeah. Mexico. And it's coming out of the ground. And it's where the nuclear tests were. I mean, I love to talk about them. And I love to talk about Godzilla. And just how yes. different we look at our angst, depending upon where we're from. Like, could you even see a major horror movie coming out within a decade of 9-11, talking about 9-11? I'm like, uh, the closest is Cloverfield. 
Cloverfield. Yeah. yeah. Closest we got. Godzilla is basically happening within a decade of the yeah. atom bombs being dropped on Japan, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And they turn it into a movie where the, the monster doesn't go after LA and New York. No, they're re- they realize there's so much internal self-hatred and guilt that this beast comes out of the water and comes and destroys Tokyo. I mean, that's a whole different level of dealing with the anxieties. And we didn't do that. And so it's really no. interesting. And that was in the 50s. Yeah. God damn, I love, I just love, We I did a lot of watching Godzilla movies yeah. as well. Oh, they're uh, so good. Recently. They're all so great. Godzilla versus Abira. Uh, or uh, sorry, Abira, the the horror from the deep, yeah. Godzilla versus the sea monster, <laughs> is still one of my favorites of all time. I remember watching that movie over and over again when I was a kid with my mom. But I just, it's it's always every time I watch it, it's a surprise because it's like you don't even know it's a Godzilla movie, all right? Until like forty minutes in, yeah. <laughs> like it's about all this other stuff, and then oh hey, there's Godzilla out of nowhere, right? Anyway, yeah, I love the, this. Is the other thing is that I have to defend slashers to my old you know, classic monster right. friends. And I have to defend the old classic monsters to my slasher friends. That's funny. So true. True. It's it, it it's always great to find, you know, appreciation of both. And yeah, but Joe Bob as well. Like I I, you know, it's some every now and then he says a thing or he has a guest on where I'm like, uh, eh, this is not value wise lining up with where I where right. I stand. But the guy's knowledge is yeah, like you said, you can get caught up in his yeah. image and his persona. Yeah. But when he's talking about film, it's like, oh, that's... yeah. And I mean, his his passion is so there. And I love that he's not it's not a joke that he loves the movies that he loves. I mean, he had things yeah. on his show this year. I was like things when they said that they were going to do a shot on video. And like even said, like one of these movies will test you. I was like, it's going to be Sledgehammer and things. <laughs> And then I immediately was like, there's no fucking way he's going to show things. Right. Because you can't, no one can watch that. Not alone. You can't watch it alone. No. I've watched it with a group of friends going, what the actual fuck? I, my favorite yeah. description of that movie came from one of the guys when we watched it together, the Algonquin Roundtable guys. And he said, it's like aliens were watching a broadcast of how people interacted and they decided to make a movie and they came down to make one and they only kind of understood human behavior. So you've got like <laughs> things like uh, like a mistake in a video game where a guy just suddenly puts the coat in the freezer for no fucking reason. And there's like yeah. talk of you know, like uh, eating, what was it? The uh, There's so many weird things in that movie. That he's like- All the voiceover stuff, <sighs> all of the, like, the fact that the, the news broadcast oh, is God. a woman, is G- Ginger, Ginger Lynn, Lynn, standing in front of a, a I guess, appliance store yeah. window. <laughs> looks like television a, yeah. It's madness. And it's, and then there's like things like, oh, is that uh, the lost painting the Satanist painting, the people's blood was used. It's like, oh, it's in your brother's house. It's just hanging up in there. Yeah, and there's yeah. and there's a child porn or necrophilia channel on the cable. And it's like, what in the hell is this movie even trying? I, the, I, I showed that to a friend of mine a couple of years ago with the description of, just so you know, I for years thought this movie was a dream I had until I watched it again. And realized that because the conditions of me first seeing it are are hazy, let's just say that. But for years and years and years, I I just thought it was a dream I'd had. 
and I, I guess it was on YouTube or something, but I, I looked it up. I watched <laughs> it because I was, we're talking about this movie things, you know, this was maybe 10 years ago. Right. And I looked it up and, and I watched it and I was like, why does this seem so familiar? And I got about halfway through and I was like, oh shit, this is that dream I had. Turns out it wasn't a dream I had. I watched this movie before. So that's the that's the, the <laughs> yeah. disclaimer I always provide for that film when I show it to somebody. Yeah, is... I, it's just so so insane and bizarre, and it's it's a one of a kind. And I love that he had yeah. that on and a couple others. I mean, he had Jim Van Beber's Deadbeat at Dawn. Oh, Deadbeat at Dawn. Yeah, and I was like, wow, wow, that's another one that I was like, holy cow, and and an amazing. That's a movie that falls into my my thing of nuggets where I just I, I love it because it's just so ballsy there's just it's yeah. there's so much i just need to make this movie in that that you're like he put his yeah. life on the line with the life of other people on the line and all for this crazy crazy story and it feels real at times because of that and it's yeah. just it's so it's like the last drive-in film it's like the last grindhouse yeah. film it's just amazing yeah i like that a lot yeah it's kind of how I feel about Leif Yonker's Darkness. Oh, I love that same. one too. I love that I'm one. Huge fan of that. Yeah, yeah. it's. I but, love the beginning of that. It's so insane. I mean, it gets it yeah. gets like it doesn't know where the fuck it is halfway through. But the, yeah, it, it drags here and there. Yeah, but the beginning of that movie is like a train. Yeah. I, in fact, yeah. I think it's been stolen from in literature. I think that great series of books, The Passage, Cronin's book, The Passage. I think there are parts of that that come from the idea of darkness. It's really interesting, especially that whole convenience store scene in the beginning. <laughs> the convenience store scene is amazing. Yeah. Because it's just like, you don't know what's happening. Yeah. And and then it all happens yeah. at once. Yeah, I'm a big fan of that. Yeah. So do you have a date for the ne for the next book? Yeah, I haven't cut my throat yet, but I'm pretty sure it's going to be uh, for the fall. Cool. Yeah. Uh, of 2022? Fall of 2022. Yeah. I look forward to it because, yeah, again, uh, Screaming for Pleasure, How Horror Makes You Happy and Healthy, I, I highly recommend. Thank you. But I want as we as we kind of come to the end of this year now, I think there were a lot of great horror movies that came out this year. Uh, I, well, there were a lot of horror movies. Right. I still haven't. I've watched a lot and I still feel like I haven't seen half of them. It's just nuts how much there is. But we also had a lot of great metal this year oh, like uh, truly an embarrassment of riches when it comes to the metal albums that came out and i was wondering if you had just two titles in mind for both metal album of 2021 and horror movie of 2021 oh my goodness if there are any standout things in either category you want to recommend i am so horrible at this as as soon as somebody i am deer in the headlights and people ask me these questions everything just goes completely away <laughs> So I'm like, uh, I'm trying to think, I've, have I listened to anything <laughs> at all this that's, year? That's the other thing. I, for a long time of the 2020, I realized I, I wasn't listening to music. Yeah. I just wasn't doing it. I was listening to old music is what was happening. Yeah. I, I really kind of went into my own belly button. I did learn, I'm trying to think of the movie that I would say was the movie this year that really blew me away. There were so many really good ones. But there was nothing yeah. that I went like, that's the leader of the pack. You know, I didn't have a leader of the pack one this year. The only two that I can think of for my purposes were uh, a movie I saw as part of the Nightstream Festival last year, which is going to be on Shutter this month. 
my heart can't beat unless you tell it to. I've heard that's really good. It is. It's uh, wow. I'm really excited to watch it again. Really incredible vampire addiction allegory and caveat. I was a big fan oh, of caveat. There's the one. Caveat was like fucking unbelievable. I'm like sitting here trying to think of the movies because what I love is that there were so many tremendously strange films oh, that yeah. really went to these places. Like I talked about element of surprise and that really creepy bunny drummer thing. Yes. And just the idea, how weird I was at first. I was like, this movie's going to lose me. If he puts on this weird yeah. vest with chains on it, who in the hell would wear this? Why would anyone get into this, this house and do this thing with the harness? And I was sure I wasn't going to appreciate it and that it was going to lose me. And it didn't. And to think that it didn't lose me was really uh, an amazing. Oh, another one was Relic. Oh, yeah. With the mother, the dying mother, where they come. The, the dying mother and the, the house yeah. that you get lost in. Yeah. I thought that that was really, really fun because it, it went down this strange path that was thoroughly unexpected. I would also, that's another one that I really. If no one has watched, lots of people were talking about Midnight Mass. The one that really spoke to me is Hellbound, the South Korean show. It's six episodes, oh, six episodes only. I think it's I based on an old yet. anime. I think part of it is based on an anime. It is so prescient. It is so of this time, and it is so stunning. It is the kind of stuff that scares me. And it may not, I think it'll work for you because it's still got a secular mindset. But what I thought was really great about this is that I've talked about this often on my show, which I can't think there would be anything more terrifying than if there literally was the voice of God. If you were just yeah. walking down the street and all of a sudden, you, you, today's your judgment. And that show is based on that. And what oh. do we do if it happens? Like, I'll just give you the opening moment, which is there's a guy in a Starbucks type place. And we meet a couple different people, but he's in the corner crying and he's got a, his phone and it's on a timer. And you see the timer winding down to zero, it winds down to zero and he starts crying, but nothing happens. He looks around, he's a little bit uh, relieved and everybody's talking and kind of like the movie, The Rapture from the 80s, there's this boom sound and everybody in the place stops and goes, what the fuck was that? And you hear this. And this guy starts freaking out and everybody's looking out through the wall come these three shadow beast monsters, huge muscular things. And they go, you are going to hell. And they chase him. And they're, it's knocking other people out of the way. Everybody's there with their phones, camera phones, taking pictures. He smashes out of the place. They're beating him up and he's running and he's trying to stay ahead of them. And they're smashing cars out of the way in the traffic. Everybody's taking pictures. So it is seen. They grab him, pin him to the ground. They're ripping at him. Blood's flying all over all the different cars. And then they all put their hands out like this. And this huge white light comes and burns him to a crisp where all that's left is like the upper part of the skeleton. And there's this big ashen powder all around him. When they do a test on the powder, it is not on the periodic table. It is something thoroughly unknown to the world. And we're watching people trying to cope with this insane thing that just happened that's on the news. And the news and science is trying to figure it out. 
What happened? How is, is this a massive hallucination? And then we start finding out that there was video of a guy in Taipei being a monk being torn to pieces. And that's on video. And this is starting to happen a lot. And this kid, he's only maybe in his early 20s, becomes a prophet. He says, this is happening because we have not listened to God. And now God is putting a large exclamation point. We have lived in sin. We have denied him. We have done all this stuff. And we are all being judged. How can you ignore this? And like the mist, a certain amount of people so terrified are immediately converts. And this becomes an institution. And so it's so talking about what's happening in the world right now. It's so talking about the, the charismatic leader. But not only that, it talks about how we put meaning to the meaningless thing. It's a little bit yeah. like Picnic at Hanging Rock, which never explains oh, wow. why things are happening. And so yeah. I'm like, this is fucking amazing. They're not going where you think. By the end, it goes nowhere that you think it's going to go. And in the end, it is emotional. There is a huge emotional release that comes with that story. And it's, is there a divine? We don't, we're not sure. Is this supernatural? What is this? They keep you guessing all the way through, but they don't keep you guessing in the way of like, everybody's just like, I don't know. It's as the investigation goes on, there are more questions. As the science goes on, there's more questions. And as the believers are getting what they want, it seems, it's like a snake that bites them. It's really, really intriguing. I'll have to check that out. That to me was the emotional high point of the year. But I will say that movies like Caveat and Relic Movies of that ilk, once again, they're talking about things that didn't used to be talked about in movies. There was a time when all horror was kind of like a Hitchcock movie. The innocent guy just happened to be there and he saw the wrong thing, wrong place, wrong time. No, now we've got interesting, complicated heroes. You know, We're talking about generational spite and angst around women. We're talking about abuse and PTSD. We're talking about cowardice. You know, we're talking about moral high grounds. I mean, really, when we're talking, if you look at Midnight Mass and Hellbound, they're both really about the dangers of thinking you're right. Yeah. Brand brand new cherry flavor is probably my favorite television thing, horror wise, this this year. I haven't Uh, seen it. It's also on Netflix. It's kind of in the same. I mean, it's very different, but it's also it's one of those things that really goes for it in ways that you don't expect it to. It doesn't apologize for its supernatural elements, but it also is kind of touching on themes of like who thinks they're right, who gets to, you know, who gets to have influence in certain situations. Mm. And, and yeah, the dangers, like everyone is responsible for some harm done to someone else yeah. in a way. And it's, I, I always, I'm a fan of that stuff. Yeah. So you also asked about music and uh, yeah. there are a couple things that I really like. The Bloody Hammers. Have you heard the Bloody Hammers? Oh, shoot. No. So the no. Bloody Hammers is a husband and wife team, and they've had multiple albums, but all of their songs, like the Cramps, are based on horror movies, and okay. they have a few that are interpretations of the movies, and then there are some that are original ideas of their own, and I love the way that they go with it. So the Bloody Hammers are really good, and there's a couple other that if you go on, say, Spotify, and you look up Bloody Hammers, you're going to have referrals to other bands yeah many of those are really good there is a whole subculture of horror movie 
punk rockabilly metal. And the metal that I'm into right now is really strange. It's dark folk music, like heathen music. It's it's metal without loud guitars. It's like metal that is like plodding metal of Black Sabbath time, where it's that dread yeah. build. And so there's a bunch of bands like that, but there is a metal one, which is fantastic. Heavy metal folk horror called Green Lung. Look up Green, Green Lung. Look up Green Lung. It's like the super folk horror festival soundtrack. It's it's good, dark, crazy music. And that one awesome. reminds me a little bit more of like Halloween and Sirith Ungol and Ooh. bands like Halloween that. put a new record out this year. That's insane. I didn't know anything. Isn't about that crazy? It. What's, what's <laughs> I crazy didn't... is I live in the Bay Area. So Oakland, we just had Exodus play, you know, uh, Gary Holtz walking around going, hey, it's like, holy shit. Now, so these bands are, are, are starting to get back together and do these things. And they're playing yeah. just tear your head off shows and rips. And so I'm going to try and get my friends together for a show to talk about anti-Christmas carols for the last few days of December, because uh, we're inundated by the Christmas carol. But I believe that there is a group of us that our Christmas carols are the horror songs, the scary songs that we play through the holidays. And I want to hear what it is that we love about these these bands, because I want to take that connection, that Venn diagram again, and talk about how horror movies and metal are so interlaced. They're so connected and that yep. there's just this great love and how scared we were. What songs actually scared us? Not, oh, this is cool and I feel... But there are oh, songs wow. that actually yeah. gave us the chills first time. The huh. first time I heard Melissa, the album Melissa by Merciful Fate scared me. The very first song I remember being scared of as a kid was a band called Blood Rock. And their song was DOA. And it's about a guy who was flying and he gets into an accident plane crash. And he's laying there and his arms and his legs are off and his girlfriend is bleeding out in front of him. And the song is this really slow boom, 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 boom. And that's about it. It's really, I mean, if you listen to it now, it's ridiculous. I mean, it's just so yes. much history has happened since 1972. But when I heard that song, I saw his body going white because he talks about that, the ground soaking with my blood and stuff. So it's almost like early Cannibal Corpse, but it's done by someone a couple decades before Cannibal Corpse. And I'm sure that it was some kind of influence on it because it's all about you know, people dying, bleeding to death. No one's going to be able to save them. The ambulance is there, but the guy's turning white while he's looking at your body. You know, all of that kind of shit is happening in, in that song. And so that's the kind of thing. And even early Alice Cooper, Ballad of Dwight Fry scared the shit out of me. He's yeah. like, uh, I got to get out of here. I got to get out of here. When he was doing that and I'm listening to it in headphones, scared me to death. Yeah. Well, I still remember the, I mean, the video for Metallica's one. Oh, yeah scaring the hell out of me yeah. like and now it might be silly but you know <laughs> oh yeah man that you fear by marilyn manson is you know yeah much as problematic figure as he is now that song i don't know why it scared the hell out of yeah. me i was in high school when it came out and it scared me <laughs> i remember Teria scaring me on uh, the stay hungry album of uh, twisted sister in fact a lot of the the song Burn in Hell wasn't scary to me, but it was like this pulse pounding thing. And I mean, mm -hmm. nobody really even remembers Twisted Sister now, but the, that, that band 
was very silly in some ways, but they had this horror movie motif. And D. Snyder was a big horror fan. Well, yeah, yeah. he went on to make yeah, horror movies. Exactly. I think um, the the song Hearteria is in two pieces. There's Captain Howdy, which is the first part, which he ends up using in his movie. And then there's uh, Street Justice, the second half of it, which is about a child killer who gets away and uh, he's torn apart in the streets. And all of these things back in that time, and it may be that at a certain age, you're just so susceptible to believing whatever's happening around you. Those were scary. You know, they actually yeah. were terrifying. So, uh, you know, I'm going to try and talk more about that kind of thing. That's interesting. I'm I'm excited to listen to that for sure. Just keep throwing spaghetti against the wall, see what happens. Well, yeah, that's I mean, that's right. It's the we're we're all part of the, you know, it's the water drop erosion. Just keep dropping water. <laughs> see, what, <laughs> see what happens. That's it. <laughs> yeah, this was great. I'm really glad that we got to have this conversation. Uh thank you. And I again, like there's so much more that I could talk to you about regarding your book, regarding your, your podcast and, and your, just your, the way you look at the genre. And uh, it's been a real treat to have you. Thank you, Andrew. To have you on the show. And anything else you want to, you want to plug or, or <laughs> one, one final thought you want to leave us with? Well, we're, we're in the holiday season now. So basically all my stuff has finally winded down. I don't have many places to be, but if anybody is interested, please take a listen to Hellbent for Horror. You can find that on any of the outlets that you usually listen to your podcasts on. You can go to hellbentforhorror.com and you can find out more about the podcast. You can listen directly from there, but also take a look at the silly things like swag, but also the book is there if you're looking for it. And if you're someone who doesn't want to you know, go to Amazon or Barnes and Noble to get the book. I'm a very big fan of keeping it grassroots if possible. So the Ibsen numbers on the, the site on my page, you can just copy that and send that over to your favorite bookseller who's really looking for the help during this holiday season to keep themselves going. They'd be really grateful to get that book for you. And so you use that number, any self-respecting <laughs> bookseller will get that for you on delivery. Excellent. That's the I think that's the way to go. So yeah, the book is Screaming for Pleasure, How Horror Makes You Happy and Healthy by S.A. Bradley. You can also listen to his podcast, Hellbent for Horror. Thanks again so much for being here. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Have a great rest of your year. <laughs> I will do my best.